You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. As followers of Christ, we need to make sure that people understand that we are not united in the love of Christ. Let me read that again. As followers of Christ, we need to make sure that people understand that we are not united in the love of Christ. But we are united by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There can be no unity outside the gospel. There are many people today who are talking about unity. And some of it comes from the media. Some of it comes from politicians. Some of it comes from community leaders. And some of it comes from church people. And I think that overall, it's a good thing. But for me, as a man with a Christian worldview, I'm reminded that unity is possible because of the power of God to change lives. Because of God's power to give people a heart to love and serve others and to respect and to tolerate others, even of other faiths and other worldview perspectives. Now, there is a good movement afoot today within Christianity seeking to find the common ground amongst the denominations and to seek for the unity in the essentials of our faith, the essential doctrines of our faith. You know, this last week our church had the opportunity to participate in the community-wide Thanksgiving service. And it was at Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. And it was fun. It was something that I thoroughly enjoyed because we were gathered there with, uh, you know, probably five or six other churches out of a community of over 100 churches. So interestingly enough, most churches didn't participate. But in the community-wide Thanksgiving service, I was very blessed because it was an opportunity to gather around the essential thing that was uniting us, and that was to give thanks to God for what he has given us through his son, Jesus Christ, salvation. And that is something that we can find common ground on, and we can unite behind, and I appreciate that. Now, is it my preference, their style of worship and the way that perhaps other churches do things? Well, no, I wouldn't be a Calvary Chapel guy if those were my preferences, But interestingly enough, it's very good, I believe, to come together from time to time and to recognize the beauty and the diversity of the different denominations that make up the body of Jesus Christ. And as we reflect on that good side, there is also a dark side or a negative side of the, the church unity movement. To name it, I would have to say that it is the idea of unity, whatever the cost. That is particularly troubling to me. And rightly so when we compare it to what the scriptures teach us about unity within the church. Now as we study this passage in Corinthians today, we will find that while Paul exhorted the church to speak the same thing and to be of the same mind, he did so assuming that the church speaks that what the church speaks and thinks would be centered in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It would be completely compatible with the good news of Jesus. It clearly follows then that Paul wasn't saying that unity in the church was the end goal, that it was unity no matter what the cost 
even at the cost of sacrificing truth. That's not what Paul was saying. In fact, if Paul was alive today, and he were to have the opportunity to speak with, say, Justin Lee, the founder of the Gay Christian Network, or Rob Bell, the controversial pastor that teaches universalism, that that all will be saved, there is no hell, or perhaps Thomas Monson, the prophet, seer, and revelator, that's his official title, of the Mormon church, I have no doubt that Paul would not be in unity with them. Would he love them? Yes, he would love them. Would he respect them? Yes, he would respect them. Would Paul listen to their views? Maybe. I'm sure he would respect their point of view. But would he accept them into the church as fellow brothers who are saved by Jesus Christ? No, he would not. Not unless, he, not unless they acknowledged the truth about Jesus Christ and repented of their sin of idolatry. Why am I so sure of that? Why can I say that from the pulpit this morning? Because of the message that comes to us today from the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. We will see today that the church, or the church unity is found in the message of the cross, which is the power and wisdom of God to salvation. That is where church unity is to be found, in the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Outside of that gospel message, whatever is not compatible to the gospel, uh, we can respect and we can love, we can tolerate, but we cannot find ultimately unity with that system, person, whatever practice it might be. Let me, let me say it this way. Whatever belief system, whatever practice, whichever person that is not compatible to the authority and the demands of the gospel message cannot be ultimately unified with Christ or his church. The Bible teaches us this. And God has given us the message of the cross, what we're going to be looking at, as the ultimate grounds for unity. It is what divides us from those that are not truly part of his family. And yet it is what we celebrate together for those that are a part of God's family. Remember Jesus, he taught about this. He said that he came to bring a sword and to kill and to destroy and to divide. This sword that, I'm, I'm sorry, not to kill and to destroy and to divide. That was, that's a mix with uh, Satan there. I'm getting uh, the, the, the two antithesis is, you know, confused there. But Jesus said he did come to uh, divide. That his teachings would divide families. They would divide people. Why? Because it is this message of the cross that is foolishness to some, to those that are perishing, the scriptures teach, but it is the power of God unto salvation for those that believe. And so this message is the basis for unity. If you're following along your outline, let's take a look at what Paul writes in verse 10, where we see him giving a call to unity in verse 10, a call to unity. There, your subpoint A on your outline. Read verse 10 with me. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So Paul enters into this first and main reason for his letter, 
which is a call for the Christians in Corinth to be unified. Now, in verse 9, if you look one verse above, Paul has mentioned that they were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ, that God the Father called them into fellowship with Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, this fellowship that you've been called into, it's being torn up. It's being ripped apart because of self-seeking within the church. Paul appeals to them here in verse 10 as a brother. He says, brethren. He's letting them know, look, I'm coming to you here as a brother in love. Now, Paul is an apostle of the church. He has spiritual authority. He saw the living Lord Jesus Christ and was discipled by him. He certainly has the authority and the position to demand that they obey him. But notice how he comes to them. He comes to them with such spiritual wisdom. He comes as a brother. He appeals to them in love. And he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, reminding them that it is under the banner of Christ's lordship that we are called to be. Under that banner of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're to find that unity And he then asks that they would all speak the same thing, that there would be no divisions among them, and that they would be perfectly joined together in the same mind and judgment. Now, (coughs) what does this mean? Excuse me. Look at that word divisions with me for a moment there. That word divisions in the Greek language is schismata, which literally means to tear, to rip, to rend. And, and what Paul is saying is that, uh, the, 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 listen, guys, we, we're not to be ripping and tearing at one another within the body of Christ. But he wants us to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, that mind, that, that speaking the same thing, the same mind, the same judgment, it's all referring to the message of the gospel. Paul will tie that in later in verse 17. But for now, know that this is what he's speaking of. When we're talking about speaking the same thing, uh, thinking the same, along the same lines, he's, that's all tied into the gospel message, the message of the cross, which is central to the Christian church. Now, it seems here that the church had become divided over superficial and fleshly matters. In other words, they weren't divided over major doctrinal issues. It was the color of the carpet. It was the paint on the walls. It was the screens on the stage. (laughs) Who knows what it was exactly? I'm just making that up. But in my experience as a pastor, sometimes these are the things that create tearing and ripping. Can you believe it? (laughs) Within a body of Christ, something so trivial and shallow as something superficial could divide a body, but yet it happens. And it, it seems that it's been happening ever since the church began. So don't feel bad, guys. We don't need to feel bad. We're not any different than any of these other churches throughout history. But it seems that when a church, or that this church, particularly in Corinth, had become divided over these superficial and fleshly matters because they were selfish and they were insisting on having their own way. And the idea behind Paul's call to unity within that Corinthian church is that instead of ripping each other apart and tearing each other up, they would be joined together in the central message of the gospel. In other words, keep the main thing the main thing. 
Stop squabbling over side issues. Stop being worried about things that ultimately in eternity are not going to matter. In verses 11 and 12, we see the cause of the division. The cause of division. Subpoint B in your outline. You can fill that in. 1 Corinthians, 11, uh, or 1 Corinthians 1, 11 and 12 says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am Paul, or I am, a Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Let's pause there. Chloe, mentioned there in verse 11, was probably one of the mature believers there in Corinth, and her family were also believers, and it is out of her concern for the unity of the church, she had sent a messenger to Paul. And, Paul, and she sent this messenger in order to make Paul aware of what was happening in this church that he had been a part of founding. And this is natural. Again, Paul, being the founder of the church there, would have wanted to know what was happening. He was also an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he has spiritual authority in this church to speak into their lives. Notice the word contentions there in verse 11. That word gives us a clue as to what was going on. The church there in Corinth had formed cliques, divisions, cliques within the body, and these cliques were tearing apart the unity of the church by ripping on each other all because of the human leaders that they followed and thought were right. Paul says there was the Paul party. Now the Paul party came along and said, we're following in the footsteps of our founder. Therefore, we're doing things right, the right way. And we're right with God because we're following the founder, the Paul party. There was the Apollos party. They would have said, our leader, he's a dynamic speaker, He's so spiritually gifted. We're following his impressive lead. And this is what actually makes us more spiritual and right on than the Paul party. Then came the Peter party, the Cephas party. It's just Peter's name uh, in, a, in a different language there. But the Peter party was saying, well, our leader's Peter. You've got Paul. You've got Apollos, but we're following Peter. He's one of the foundational apostles of the church, you see. You know, Jesus gave him the keys of the kingdom, so we're following him, and that makes us more right on and more spiritual than you guys. We have it figured out. And then you got to love this last party. There's a group of these in every church, the Jesus party. They're very holy, as you can see by their name. They were saying, you guys, you're all so carnal. <laughs> we're following none less than Jesus Christ. In comparison to us, you guys are really not very holy or spiritual at all. Gotta love the Jesus party. Lord, have mercy on us all. Because I think we've all been a part of the Jesus party from time to time. We've all been part of that group that says, hmm, I'm doing better than that guy over there or that girl over there. So I'm pretty holy, pretty spiritual. It's an ugly thing. And Paul's denouncing it here. Many commentators believe Paul is randomly using these names as the leaders of different cliques in order to protect the names of the actual men of the church in Corinth that were leading these groups. 
But either way, the lesson still applies. Because in reality, these people who boasted about which leader they were following and putting down the others, they were really showing that they were themselves prideful and sinful. They were themselves filled with fleshly, earthly wisdom. The wisdom that comes from below. The wisdom that seeks to be superior to others. Anytime someone points out or points to a certain minister or leader and makes a claim that their group alone is holy or their group is more spiritual or more right with God because of that leader, it's sinful. Unless you're talking about Jesus, of course, which binds all the universal church together. He is the head of the church. But to divide the body of Christ, to tear it up, to rip on it, especially tearing at and ripping on fellow believers in Jesus Christ, this is wrong. Now, on the other hand, to make a distinction between churches and leaders is not wrong. It is not wrong to recognize differences in the way that men lead or teach or preach. It is not wrong to recognize differences between why different denominations exist. It is not wrong to make a distinction between styles that exist within the church. That's fine. What's wrong here is when we rip on them and tear at them, Paul is saying. That is wrong. You know, one of the beautiful things about the universal church is that it is so diverse. You know, God makes different people. He gives them different callings, and he gives them different ministries. Churches are diverse in style and method, and all of that is still able to bring great glory to God. As long as the message does not change. It is the message that must not change. Charles Spurgeon has a great quote about this. He said this. He said, I bless God that there are so many denominations. If there were not men who differed a little in their creeds, we should never get as much gospel as we do. God has sent different men to defend different kinds of truth. But Christ defended and preached all. Christ's testimony was perfect. The point here is that distinction or recognizing differences is one thing. Division is another. Causing division is wrong. Preferring one preacher or pastor over another is natural. We all do that. We all have a a, a teacher, a beloved Bible teacher that we would point to and say, man, I love that guy's sermons. I really prefer to listen to his podcast above all the others. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But then when we come along and we say, you know, this other guy, and we begin to espouse something, a rumor perhaps, or something that is gossip about this person's life, that's ripping at it. It's tearing up the body. It's causing a division, and that is sin. That is wrong. To sow dissent, to divide into a clique or become a faction, and to sow dissent and complain to others, this is where Division within the church happens and is wrong. Paul now begins to talk about our central reason for unity, uh, subpoint C, the reason for unity. In verses 13 through 17, Paul asks three rhetorical questions to start off. He says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? 
Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, if you're new to the Bible, the answer to those is no, no, and no, okay? Just in case, I'd throw it out there. But I thank God, Paul says, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Another one just came to him. Whoop, oh, yeah. And then, besides, I don't know if I, whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So Paul started off there asking those obviously rhetorical questions. Christ is not divided. Paul was definitely not crucified for the church. That was Christ. And he says, nor were believers baptized in my name. They were baptized in Christ's name. He's really starting to get down to the nitty-gritty here with these questions. That's the purpose of the questions. He wants to zero in on the real issue that's underlying the problem. He's saying, why are we making such a big deal about mere humans when it is Jesus Christ who deserves the glory, the honor, and the praise within the church? We're not here because of some man. We're here because of the God-man, Jesus Christ. We should be talking about him. We should be making a big deal about him. We should be focused on him and what his message is. Paul is using these questions to expose the underlying issue that was plaguing the church there in Corinth. You see, they were operating in, again, as I said, fleshly, human wisdom, earthly wisdom, and they were not keeping their eyes on Jesus Christ. How do we know it was earthly wisdom? Because it was uh, causing destruction. Earthly wisdom, according to the Bible, according to James, chapter uh, 3, you can read there the the last part of that that chapter, he talks about what earthly wisdom is and what it does, and it's described as being self-seeking as being self-serving and resulting in self-destruction. Church, this is the wisdom that was operating in the church at Corinth, a wisdom that was self-seeking, a wisdom that was self-serving, and it was resulting in self-destruction. And we need to take a minute this morning and pause, and we need to ask ourselves, do we see the fruit of earthly wisdom in our lives? In other words, do you see the results of you being a person that is self-seeking, self-serving, and it's leading to self-destruction in your life? We need to ask ourselves that, not only as a church, but as an individual, as a family here this morning. Am I operating on the principles of earthly wisdom? You see, earthly wisdom is, going, is out for itself first and foremost, even in the things that it does for others, it's really doing them for recognition and for what that brings to them instead of for the benefit of others. It's the opposite of the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves, we need to pause and think, you know, hey, is this the kind of wisdom that I'm operating in? Is it all about me? Is it all about my dreams, my accomplishments, my kingdom that I'm building Is it all about my ambition? Because listen, if we're operating in that realm, especially within the church, it's going to cause destruction. It's going to divide. It's going to hurt. Coming back to the passage here, I want to point out that these verses basically prove that Paul did not believe that baptism is what saves you. 
Paul certainly didn't put very much stock in who it was that was doing the baptizing. And if baptism is indeed what saves a person, then he would surely have paid much more attention to who he had baptized. But he kind of talks about it in a nonchalant way, doesn't he? He's like, you know, I, I, I'm not sure who I baptized there among you. I baptized so-and-so and so-and-so. And so. Oh, yeah, and that other family. But that was it, as far as I know. That's all he said. Now, if baptism is what saves you, I guarantee you the Apostle Paul would have been all about baptism. That would have been his ministry. But because it was not, there's, there's, another, there's additional proof, biblical proof, that baptism is not what saves you. So if you're a sacramentalist this morning, believing that by partaking in the sacraments of the church you are saved, you need to seriously study the scriptures because it's not what they're teaching here. Paul, the apostle that was discipled by our Lord Jesus Christ, did not emphasize baptism. He emphasized salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. So, again, we come now to uh, the crooks of the whole matter in verse 17. This is the reason for Paul's being in Corinth, which also happens to be the main reason for church unity. Let's read verse 17 one more time, please. It says, Therefore Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect." What is Paul saying here? He's essentially telling them, listen, that you need to get back to the point. You need to get back to the main thing as a church. The main thing is the gospel. The cross of Jesus Christ is central to the church, and it is our basis for unity. The whole reason that the church existed in Corinth was because God had sent Paul to preach the gospel. And the only reason Paul went there to preach the gospel was because God had sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. And through that death on the cross, Paul came to believe that he was a sinner in need of God's salvation. And and, and so Paul became, became a preacher, one who was sent by Christ, an apostle by the will of God. Remember, that was his introduction. He went and he preached the message that he had learned about. Now, how did Paul preach? Well, it says there in verse 17, he did not preach with wisdom of words. This means that Paul didn't show up and rely on his clever speech that he had prepared. Paul didn't come with the wisdom of men and an eloquent presentation as he preached. In other words, Paul just spoke plainly and simply the message of the gospel. He wasn't trying to impress anyone with his knowledge. He wasn't trying to show off. He was just simply and powerfully speaking truth about sin and about salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. It was that simple. I love that. I'm very, very thankful for that. You know, speaking of leaders and founders of movements, our uh, Calvary Chapel's founder, Pastor Chuck Smith, had a saying that is uh, always in my brain when passages like this come up. And it was the saying that says that what you uh, strive to attain, you must strive to maintain. And you know, a lot of churches operate on this principle of, look, we have really worked hard to make a big presentation for you on, on, on all about this, this presentation. And it's about cleverness of speech. And, 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 and that's not what it's supposed to be about. Because, listen, what you strive to attain, 
you have to always and, and, and continually strive to maintain. And, and you know what? That's why there's a lot of burnout, you guys, in churches and in church ministries. It's because it's all about this big program, and, and, and it could be about striving to attain the desired results, and then you have to maintain those results. And, and when they don't happen, man, people get discouraged very quickly, and people get burnt out on ministry very quickly. Paul didn't come in with that kind of a program, did he? He didn't have, you know, a, a, a designed program necessarily. He just came in, and he's like, where's the synagogue? I'm going to share the gospel there. When they kick me out of there, I'm going to go next door, and I'm going to share the gospel there. And we're going to share the gospel, and we're going to share the gospel, and we're going to share the gospel. And that was what his program was, the centrality of the cross. And so listen, guys, if, if we uh, are going to learn from the church in Corinth the lesson that Paul has for them and for us, then we too need to make church about the gospel message it's the gospel message that changes lives. It's the gospel message that gives us the uh, change in ourselves to be able to serve others unconditionally and to love others and respect and tolerate others. So listen, how do we do that? Well, we do that by just being all about Jesus. The most powerful evangelists out there are not Billy Graham and Greg Laurie. Did you know that? You can crunch the numbers and do the statistics. They'll never lead as many people to the Lord as just everyday Christians who are walking with Jesus will. Because right here, we have the potential to have over 300 evangelists going out into our community after we close the service. This is the huddle. It's halftime. We're huddled together. We're getting the game plan. But it's you in the simple way that you share what Jesus has done in your life, that changes the community, that changes people's lives out there. You know, God has chosen to bless the message of the cross, and he's chosen to bless those who share it. What is the message? It is that you and I are sinners in need of a Savior. It is that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world, the scope of God's love is ginormous, guys. Of course, we know that only those that accept it, believe it, receive it, will be saved. But that doesn't change the fact that God loved the whole world, so he sent his only son to die for the sins of the world. The scope is, is, is big. It's a big message. It's a message of love. God loves the world, and if we will admit this, and if we'll confess our sins to God and turn away from sin, if we'll follow Jesus, he promises to forgive us. He promises to cleanse us and to save us for all eternity. To choose to reject Christ is to choose to go it on your own. And one day when you stand before your maker, he will judge you based on your righteousness using the standard of his own law. You'll never measure up on your own is what I'm saying. We need a Savior. We need Jesus, God himself in human form. It is by trusting in him, believing that he died for us on the cross, and receiving that gift of grace through faith that we are saved. It's that simple, guys. Now this morning, I want to close 
uh, by giving you the opportunity to confess faith in Jesus Christ if you've not already done so, to, to make sure that your life is right with God so that when you stand before him on the day of judgment, you're not standing there going, well, I'm a really good person. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery, Lord. I've never told a lie. Oh, wait, I can't say that. Well, um, I'm a good person. Okay, if, you have, if that's all you have to stand on before the judgment throne of God on the day that you step into eternity, listen, you're going to be bummed out. You're going to, be, you're going to have a wake-up call to a reality that you can never attain to God's righteousness in your own strength, in your own life. I shared this at the memorial for Debbie, but if Debbie was here today, she would say, you know what's messed up or you know what's wrong with your life? You need Jesus. That's what she would tell you today. You need Jesus. And that's what Paul the apostle is telling us. That's what I'm telling you. That's what the Lord wants you to hear. You need Jesus. And, and, and not because, you know, he's a crutch. Although I don't have any problems admitting that he's a crutch in my life. But, but because he's the savior of the world. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And to those that believe that and receive that, he will save you. Let's pray.